Um, so we're continuing in our study, Gospel Truth, and today uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Uh, so at this time I'll ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to begin in verse 9, and we're actually going to go through verse 15 just to kind of uh, fill it out. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And and a voice from heaven came, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord all flesh is grass. The beauty of that grass is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, will endure forever. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. So, I've been learning some things about God from science fiction lately. To be honest, I've learned some things, a lot of things about God from science fiction over the past, you know, 36 years. Um, I'm a fan. But... Um, this new Netflix show, is there any Stranger Things fans out there? Yeah, this is, this is, this is big deals these days. This Netflix, Netflix show, Stranger Things, has been very popular over the past year. The show centers around a small town that has somehow come under attack from monsters from another dimension. Um, you know, so, true story. The, the main characters of this group of middle school boys, is the, the main characters is this group of middle school boys, kind of in like a Goonies vein, um, who attempt to kind of figure out mysteries like the loss of one of their friends uh, as they learn about this other dimension that they call the Upside Down. Now, the Upside Down is a dark, monster-filled place that's somehow a lot like our own world, yet it's darker, and it's full of like toxic air and misery. The show isn't written with any kind of theological or, or spiritual agenda, as far as I can tell, and I'm not making any direct analogies between science fiction and the biblical narrative, but, but the show has put me in a certain, um, the show did come to mind when I read today's passage for multiple reasons. In, in a sense, it kind of put me in a certain frame of mind to suspend my own disbelief when reading passages like the one that we have this morning that, that, that speaks of this spiritual battle. It helps me not only with the idea that there is so much going on in the text that I don't understand, but also that there is so much going on in, in the world that I don't understand. So last week, we went to the Judean countryside, and we saw this man from the wilderness named John the Baptist, and he was dunking people into the Jordan River and telling them that they have to prepare for what God is about to do. Now, according to Mark... John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Evidently, the thing that folks needed to do in order to prepare the way of the Lord is to confess their sins, 
to be honest about their addictions, to be honest about their greed, their immorality, their idolatry. There are other things that they're going to instead of God. And if they're going to be at a place where they can follow Him and and see the new thing that God is about to do in their midst, then they would need to put down these weights of sin that are holding them down. And the rest of Mark's gospel is going to be a march towards the cross and the resurrection, where Jesus, through sacrifice, declares victory over sin. He declares victory over death itself, over evil. But Mark makes it clear right from the start that sin is the real problem here. It's interesting, though, that that the next episode in the story sees Jesus himself coming to be baptized by John. Why would this be? John himself said, One more powerful than I is coming after me. And that I'm not worthy to to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. Meaning I'm not even worthy to be Jesus' servant. Matthew fills out the account with with detail um, by describing that John was completely taken aback by Jesus' request to be baptized. He said, what? I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. Jesus replies that, that, he must, that it must be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. We're not given more than that, but I do think that the next few things that happen kind of give us a clue as to the, uh, at least the importance of what's going on here. Jesus goes down into the Jordan, is baptized by John, and when he comes up, Mark tells us that in Jesus' eye, he saw the heavens torn open, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. John had mentioned before Jesus came on the scene that while he baptized with, with water, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And now it would appear that the Spirit is showing up and ready to play his part. Remember, the Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. We see the Spirit showing up at Jesus' baptism and descends on Him, preparing Him, in a sense, for what was to come. And this theme was foreshadowed. We've already been spent some time in Isaiah at the beginning of this series. Um, This theme was foreshadowed in Isaiah 11. Um, Turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 11 says, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. So I might be able to see kind of the the wheels turning in your head towards the Trinity. The problem is that for many of us, the Trinity um, belongs in kind of like dusty old theological textbooks. Um, A few years ago, I heard a preacher apologize to his congregation by saying that if the Trinity 
was not initially described to you in a way that made your soul come alive, you were done a disservice. Christians believe that our God, who is one, presents himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that God exists in eternal community, in eternal relationship and love, and it's the mark of the church that we are called to live in and reflect that community. It's as if when when the Son shows love for the Father, we're placed in between them and we're blessed. When the Spirit descends on the Son, we are affected. The eternal love that exists among the Godhead gives life and new life to every living thing. While the term Trinity never appears in Scripture, the concept of God functioning in certain roles is just pregnant in the narrative. This is exactly what we're seeing here. God the Father sends His Son Jesus into the world in order to free men and women just like us from bondage to sin through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Jesus initiates His ministry by walking into the Jordan, and when He raises His head out of the water, the Spirit then descends upon Him, and the immediate response from the Father is affirmation and love. Because even though this mission would ultimately cost his son his life, it was exactly where Jesus needed to be. It was the righteous role for Jesus to play. It was proper that when Jesus steps into that role, his father's words would affirm it, regardless of the cost. But there's more. The Holy Spirit's role in this appears to be the thing that guides Jesus in challenging, um, in challenging things that must take place for his mission to be fulfilled. So the next thing that happens to Jesus after he hears those words of affirmation from his father is that he is immediately driven into the wilderness. Wilderness is a theme that has permeated the narrative of Israel, and now Mark is picking this up in several ways. It would, in Mark, it would appear that, that the necessary consequence of Jesus' baptism is that he would have to be sent out to the wilderness for a time of testing. One writer called it the organic sequel to the baptism story. Through John's baptism, Jesus is presenting himself as the anointed one, God's son, God's Messiah, Israel's Messiah. And the immediate consequence is that he would face a time of trial and testing. See, this is not Jesus going off for meditation and prayer. This was the beginning of a war. The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness with the same language that sees Jesus drive out demons later in the story. It's sudden. It's it's aggressive, perhaps. First comes the call to ministry. And then comes the trial. First comes the baptism. Then comes the test. I've felt this a bit in my own story as I've Spoken of before, I felt a call to ministry in the spring of 2000. My immediate experience was one of astonishing affirmation. At 18 years old, I received a paid internship without doing any more than just asking for it. And I spent two years having just the most incredible time. But then the internship ended, and I spent the next few years 
in the wilderness, not really sure of what I was supposed to do. I, I disliked the work that I was doing. I had several jobs in a row that just felt like a square peg in a round hole. There was a time of, of difficult testing that followed a season of affirmation. It was the closest that I ever got to walking away, certainly from the church, but it was the closest I ever got to walking away from God. Thankfully, though, the thing that fueled my spirit during that time was the fact that I had such an affirming time after my initial call, I felt like God was attending to me, which is a word that we see in today's passage. I felt the Holy Spirit building my character through this time. And even though this was a specific season, and in my mind there was an eventual end to it, in reality, that season, that season actually helped me to strengthen me for the trials that would continue for the rest of my life and certainly for the rest of my ministry. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. When I face trials today, I take encouragement by remembering that time because I see now, if only through this dark glass, how he was working in me. He was strengthening me for what was to come, even though it was excruciatingly painful. Jesus is being driven into the wilderness. And this echoes, of course, Israel's experience of 40 years in the wilderness. Israel was called by God, blessed to be a blessing, and then led out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. They wander in the desert for 40 years before entering the promised land, and there was never the assumption that, that Israel's time in the wilderness would be like completely put behind them, and it was never going to be brought up again. No, the, the time was to be a part of their identity. They were to be a people defined by God's faithfulness. And so Jesus' time in the wilderness is acting as a reminder of that identity, but also showing that in him, Israel will fulfill its calling to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. That's how God does it. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new David. He's Adam and Moses and David all wrapped up into one guy. Mark is setting the stage for Jesus to be everything that Israel was supposed to be. And Satan is not happy about this. After Jesus is driven into the wilderness, Mark tells us that he is tempted by Satan. Um, some commentators tell us that the word tempted may not be the best here. Tested may be a better word. Jesus was tempted in the sense, Jesus wasn't tempted in the sense that there was like a, a sin trying to bubble up from base pleasure. No, the implication here is that he was tested by Satan. He was found and he was found worthy. He wrestled with Satan like Jacob wrestled with God, and he came out the better man. When Jesus comes out of the wilderness and begins his ministry, Satan is not finished with him. Throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, we repeatedly will see this sort of strange spiritual warfare language continue. Satan's attack on Jesus' ministry is a prominent theme throughout Mark's gospel. The lesson learned in this episode is that Satan did his worst, and Jesus leaves the encounter readier than ever to fight for his people and for his kingdom. You see, if he is victorious... 
then we are victorious in him. Last week, we talked about living into God's mystery. I think we're also called to live into his victory. This, of course, doesn't mean that Satan's attacks are going to deflect right off of us. Uh, These times of trial will hurt. They will be filled with pain. They will leave scars. But in Christ, we trust that God's sovereign redemption is at work and the reconciliation of all things has begun. There's one phrase in Mark's account that doesn't appear in Matthew or Luke, and that's, was, that's that he was with wild beasts. Now, we could see this as a sign that Jesus, as, the, as like the new Adam, um, can be with the creatures of the wild in a way that has not been seen since Adam. Um, it's interesting that what follows uh, that passage in Isaiah that we read earlier um, is this. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there may be a taste of this renewed creation in Mark's description of the events. Um, Others have seen something of kind of Christian persecution in this world, uh, in in Mark's words. Uh, Wild beasts certainly play a role in Christianity's story, and it would be encouraging for them to know that their Savior had a power and authority over them on the other hand, Mark just might be commenting the fact that the wilderness is a dangerous place. Um, I'm in a class this semester on trauma and healing, um, and I've heard, we had an intensive this past week, and I've just heard stories of unspeakable horror. Our world is so broken, and trauma, like the healing process that can come after it, can't be spoken of as something that will be turned on and off like a light switch. I think that the freedom and the victory that we have in Christ gives us courage and calls us to start this Holy Spirit-led journey of healing that for each of us will, will not be completed this side of glory. We're called to shed sinful habits. We're, we're called to, to take off the old man, as Paul says in Colossians. And we're called to, to begin holy habits, spiritual disciplines, to, to put on the new man. But a healing process following a time of severe trial might actually require professional help. It's important to remember that that Trinitarian conversation from before. Because if we believe that God actually does exist in an eternal relationship of love, then, and he is calling us to mirror that love and reflect it back into not only each other, but also into the world, then it would only make sense that healing from times of trial would necessarily include a loving community, not only to affirm us, but also to challenge us into places that are the best for us. That community will more often look like house churches, small groups, accountability partners, times with you and and trusted, times where you and a a trusted friend with an open Bible and a cup of coffee, just just talk about your lives and pray that God remind each other of God's uh, influence and his love for you. 
But it also may need to look like a time of professional therapy where we work through dark things with someone who's dedicated their lives to being a counselor. Um, This is something that we need to take seriously. The final detail about Jesus' time in the wilderness is that angels attended on him or waited on him. Um, Note here that this was the last detail. The story didn't say that Jesus, that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and um, like guardian angels protected him from all danger. No, that, that test needed to happen. We're told in other accounts that it was to fulfill all righteousness. But in truth, we can only speculate why this um, testing was necessary. Satan was giving his moment. The wilderness um, was wild. But through it all, the angels waited on him, served him, perhaps whispering in his ears the words of the Father and assuring him, um, as N.T. Wright says, that his beloved Father was watching over him, was with him, was loving him, acting through him, pouring out his Spirit all the time in and through him. We can be inspired by the angels' actions here, when helping our friends through times of trial. You see, we can't take away the pain. But we, can, we can't protect our friends from the wilderness. But you better believe that you can be a voice in your friend's ear that they are loved by God and that He is with us every step of the way. And it's funny, then Jesus leaves the wilderness. And He wants us to take courage in his victory in this season, in this, in this moment, this episode of testing. Um, he leaves his time of testing in the wilderness with just this laser focus on his mission and, and a call for those who would father him, uh, uh, follow him. Um, after all of it, after all this pain, after all this testing, after wrestling with Satan himself, Jesus comes out of this time of trial strong and then immediately finds out that John the Baptist has been arrested. He turns his faith toward Galilee. He rolls up his sleeves. And then he says in the first words in Mark's gospel, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. I love that scene in in the return of the king um, in in the Lord of the Rings where uh, the, the, the advancing army uh, is, is coming onto Gondor, and this cowardly steward, um, who's supposed to be you know, in, in charge, who's supposed to be leading these people, runs out and tells the truth, so abandon your posts, you know, run, flee for your lives. You know, this thing, this, this advancing army, this is too much. And he's just this, um, he's just distraught. And the next thing you see is Gandalf's uh, staff, hitting him on the head and knocking him to the ground. And Gandalf steps up and he says, prepare for battle. Return to your posts and fling these foul beasts into the abyss. And I think I, I thought of something like that. When, 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 when Jesus comes out of this time of trial, when he comes out of this time of testing, he, he just, no matter what Satan could throw to him, he comes out of it and even though he sees John the Baptist, his friend, has now been arrested, he comes and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. I thought of that when I read this, uh, this quote this week that I'll use in closing. The kingdom's presence in Jesus fits well the mark and narrative of Jesus 
as the Son of God leading the Trinity in an apocalyptic holy war to liberate the cosmos. For the kingdom of God ultimately is God's reign, where the cosmos is reconciled to him. Where Jesus is present, there demons and disease flee. And so the kingdom has its advent with Jesus, the coming one whom John the Baptist announced. The proper response is repentance, joining God's army to be liberated, and once liberated, advancing the liberation of the whole cosmos, which ultimately is the content of the gospel that Jesus calls us to believe in. Liberation is coming. Join the resistance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we look to you to guide the path of this resistance to evil, this resistance to death, before you have called us into new and abundant life. But Lord, you also remind us that this war, that this battle is not going to take place with swords and guns and violence. It's going to take place through sacrifice. It's going to look like love. It's going to look like um, two guys getting together for a cup of coffee and being honest with each other about their, about their sin and about their trials, about their tests. It's going to look like a family coming together and confessing their sins to one another. It's going to look like a church gathering around the table and saying, I was wrong. Forgive me. Help me. Um, being honest, being transparent. That's what it's going to look like. That's how we're going to win this battle. And through that, it's going to help us to put down those weights and then serve the world with just a sacrificial love that looks like you. Father, we just ask that you would do a great work in our midst, that you would build this church, that you um, would be the glory, that to all things would be your glory in the most holy name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.